0: Hello and welcome to the Naturopathic Family Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Michael Smith, a naturopathic physician on a mission to help individuals and families achieve health and wellness across the lifespan and throughout generations. Thank you for joining me today. Welcome to this, the Valentine's Day episode of the Naturopathic Family Podcast, it is February, and that means it's American Heart Month, or the month in which we can celebrate and um, remind ourselves about how important it is to take care of our heart. And that is my goal today. And in honor of Heart Month, I want to jump into a story. When I was in undergraduate um, education, when I was doing my bachelor's degree, I did the pre-med track. So I was on track to become a doctor. And I was doing a lot of shadowing. One of the opportunities I had to shadow was in the operating room of a very large hospital. Now I was shadowing the anesthesiologist, not the surgeon. So it was a really neat opportunity for me to not only see uh, this uh, Oh, like one surgery, but I got to bounce around and look at a lot of different operations and how they work. One of them was a coronary bypass open heart surgery, and if you are not familiar with that, basically, um, our heart is a muscle; it it's beating and it needs blood just like any other muscle of our body. And when, um, and so it's those coronary arteries, these little thin arteries that go from the aorta. And feed the muscle of the heart with blood and with oxygen so that it can keep pumping and do its job. Um, so sometimes when those get clogged or during heart disease or things like that, um, that can lead to a heart attack. Um, for example, or other complications. So, one thing that they can do is they t- actually take a vein from the leg, they take a um, harvest a vein, and they literally stitch it in place of that coronary artery past where there's an area of blockage. And they're able to basically circumvent that or bypass that coronary artery and provide the heart with the blood and the oxygen that it needs. So I was watching this, and I was able to come in, at different times in the operation. Um, and one of the most powerful moments for me, um, this is probably one of the most powerful shadowing moments I had in, in general uh, during my pre-med um, preparation for medical school, was seeing the chest opened in in the surgery and the heart beating inside of it. It was amazing to see how the heart was beating to peer over that anesthesia drape and to see this marvel of a machine that pumps indefinitely and, and the amazing things that were going on to keep that heart working as best as it could for as many years as 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 could be done. Fast forward a little bit to medical school. So it was my first year of medical school. And in the first year of medical school, there's all the basic anatomy, physiology, um, biochemistry type of classes that I was taking. And we had an in-person cadaver lab where we were learning the structures of the human body um, using cadavers, and um, uh, for the part of the, the anatomy course, we were looking at the heart, and we were learning the structures of the heart, learning which ones are those coronary arteries that I was talking about a minute ago. Um, what all their names are, um, all of the, the the chambers, and all the different features that um, are related to the heart, and. It was a really, um, there was, it came a moment when I was able to hold a heart, a human heart. And um, for this presentation on the video version of this podcast, uh, I kind of attempted to recreate that using an artificial intelligence generated image. But, but really, it was an amazing experience to hold that heart. And, as I re- wrote about it later, I said, I pondered then as a student, the individual whose heart this was, how it beat for years on end, never stopping until the end. I reflected on the moments that that heart witnessed, happy, sad, excited, scared, wonder, awe, triumphs, challenges, victory, and perhaps possibly heartbreak. It is amazing how how much our hearts can hold. It is amazing how much our hearts can hold. And today, I really want to dive into how we can take care of our hearts through nutrition and through diet. And so as we do, I pose the question, how well are you holding the health of your heart? It's pumping, it's doing so many things to preserve the life and ability for us to do stuff, pumping blood throughout our body. We need that blood on this, for so many reasons. And um, we have the opportunity to really dive in and take care of our heart. And I believe there's a lot of really, um, a lot of ways of doing that. So before doing so, I want to pose a series of questions. Do you know somebody with high blood pressure? Do you know somebody with high cholesterol? Have you ever known somebody who's had a heart attack? Now, if I ask this question to a majority of the population, I think the answer would be yes. And as a physician, I've been able to work with many people who have... Um, high blood pressure, who have high cholesterol, and to help in as many natural ways as possible to lower those, so that this the their heart health can be optimized for as many years as can uh, as possible down the road. Uh, this is a a graph of the incidence of heart disease related deaths in the United States, and. Uh, You can imagine, if you're listening to this, the map of the United States, the 48 states, and a majority of those heart-related deaths are found in kind of the southwest area of the... southeast area, excuse me, of the United States. And where I live in Idaho, it's not as prevalent. There's not as many heart-related diseases, deaths... Deaths from heart disease, as there are in other areas of the country, but it's still significant. Um, looking at the statistics from Idaho, um, the heart disease deaths is one hundred and eighty point four per one hundred thousand people, persons, and that was, I believe, from two thousand and. Um, 2021 now the goal for Idaho is 130 and we're at 180 um, so it's a little less than the national average but still significant and I say significant because if you know somebody from with heart disease with high blood pressure maybe you are that person how much would the life of those around you or those that you love be different if that person wasn't there? Um, it's, it's kind of a sobering thought. but um, and, and so it's easy to get lost in these statistics of, oh, we're not as bad as other places or whatever, but really each individual matters. And I think that's the motivating factor for me to help encourage and teach about heart health so that we can preserve the health of the one so that the family and friends around that one person can enjoy that, the presence of that wonderful individual for as long as possible. There are so many different factors that lead to heart disease. Uh, the acronym that's thrown around in medical lingo is ASCVD, which really stands for Atherosclerotic Cardiovascular Disease Risk. Um, ASCVD. The mnemonic that I've learned is FLASHED, um, which which stands for family history, lipids, age, smoking, hypertension, or high blood pressure, exercise, and diabetes. Now, there's so many of these factors, and I, there's likely others as well, but these are the, the most, I think, common ones that contribute the most to heart disease. All of these things contribute to the likelihood or the risk of somebody having an atherosclerotic cardiovascular event. What does that mean? Basically, a heart attack or a stroke are the most common. That's when the arteries in our body, whether it's in our brain, whether it's in our heart, like I was talking about with the coronary arteries, they get clogged up with plaque, whether it's cholesterol or other things. They're getting clogged up, they can't function, the tissue that's fed by that blood vessel loses the ability for it to get oxygen, so we're not able to function um, in a simple way of speaking. All of these things contribute to that. Now, there are some things like family history and age we just simply can't change, it's just the way it is. A person is how old they are, and um, their family history is the way it is. But there are so many other things that we can change, and that is what gets me excited about helping support individuals with their heart. There are several different um, ideas that I want to challenge. Number one is the medications are necessary. Now, as a naturopathic physician, I have the, um, in in the state of Idaho, I have the ability to write prescriptions for heart medications. Um, And I believe that they have their place. Um, If an individual has a really high blood pressure, like really high, say over 200, they need to go to the hospital so that that um, blood pressure can go down. And it doesn't cause any major problems. Now that's an oversimplification, likely, because there's lots of things to factor in. But medications have their role; they have their place. And, but are they the only thing that we can use? That we can use to address heart health? We'll get there. Surgery is inevitable. Is another challenge. Uh, another idea that I'd like to challenge. I was recently talking to a patient who had atrial fibrillation or AFib, and uh, they had heard about how other people who had AFib had to go in and get ablation, and that was the only thing that could be done. Now, again, this is is complicated, and medical care is really individualized based on what that person needs, but perhaps surgery may not always be be necessary if we can really change our our lifestyle. I also want to challenge the idea that some people might put forth that natural solutions don't work. Um, there's and and you can find this in the literature and the scientific studies. There is going to be studies that say it, this diet thing does work, this diet thing does doesn't, and so on and so forth. This kind of battle of ideas. Now, when would natural solutions not work if we don't implement them? I think that's the challenge um, going going back to medications versus these natural solutions is that medications are just a pill that someone can take. Um, that's a fairly easy action to do. just got to remember to take my meds every morning. And sometimes that's necessary. I support patients where they're at. If they come to me with medications, I'll take them where they're at and we'll go from there. But really the work, and I say work, of changing diet, of changing lifestyle, of moving the body more, takes a lot of effort. It might take a little bit of money in some cases to change diets um, routines but really mostly it's effort and that's I think the truly the case when natural solutions don't work is when we don't apply them but I have seen the data and I've know from experience that these really can work if we want to put the effort in to um, see them work So, this presentation, I really want to focus on diet, on kind of the overall structure, the big picture of what we're eating, and I like to pose the question, what is the best diet for heart health? There's so many diets thrown around there. You've heard of them. You've heard of the keto. You've heard of dash Mediterranean. There's the vegetarian. There's paleo. There's so many different diets and a lot of diets that are named after individuals who's came up, who have come up with them. But what is the best one? Now, the, the answer to that question will really depend on you and your individual circumstances. Um, but there's a lot of opportunity to explore to look at generally what might be optimal so this is a diagram uh, if you're able to see this version and if you're driving or listening to it while you're working out great go you can find this um, images on youtube on the video version of this podcast uh the America, there's a study done to look at ten different diets and how well they aligned with the American Heart Association recommendations for food intake, and they looked at all these. And there's the the green, yellow, red classification. Uh, basically, the summary is that the Dash diet, which we'll get into in a minute, is meets all of the criteria for optimal heart health diet. Mediterranean is the close second. And then vegetarian, and then there's some others that are like the that are low fat, low carb. Paleo is actually number ranked number 9, and then very low carb is number 10. A very low carb is like the Atkins or keto diet. And that's they've they've looked at all those and they've, they've given them each a score, and that's what they've come up with. So it's really interesting to see that there are some diets um, that are perhaps more optimal for uh, for heart health than others. Dash Mediterranean, uh, veget- Dash Mediterranean vegetarian being the top of the list, and the Paleo, Atkins, Keto, maybe not so much. So it's really interesting to compare those and what they each are good for. And yeah, paleo and keto um, would like has a role. They've been researched. Um, but maybe it's not for heart health specifically, if you know what I'm talking about. So we're going to talk about a couple of those. Number one being the dash diet. So, what is dash? Dash simply refers to dietary approaches to stop hypertension. This diet uh, is focuses on having foods that are rich in potassium, calcium, magnesium, fiber, and protein they're low in trans fats and saturated fats, and also low in sodium. So when when I think of dash, the number one thing I think about is sodium. So think about like a dash of salt on your food. That's what I think about, and that's what I often associate dash with. I think it's fair to say that we love our salt. Why do we love it? It tastes good. Salt tastes good. It makes food palatable. Um, I was reading or at times I've looked into the history of salt um, from the ancient Egyptians to the Romans to present day life and how much salt is so valuable. They used to trade it. It used to be worth, um, you could trade it just like you would gold. That's why the word salt is related to the Latin sal or sal. It's related to the word salary Um, because, as I've learned, someone you could get you could pay someone in salt instead of gold, and that was worth so much. Um, We have the same root the sal comes in the salad for example. Putting salt on vegetables, in this case what we would know as a dressing, to make it more palatable. Salt helps preserve food. It helps um, keep that food longer. Um, I talked about that in my last podcast episode about fermented foods, um, so I invite you to check that one out. Um, it There's so many things that salt does in supporting food preservation. Now, the American... Heart Association, in specifically with the Dash diet, which um, uh, they re- it's recommended that we get between fifteen hundred to twenty three hundred milligrams of sodium per day. So Dash, think sodium, fifteen hundred to twenty three hundred milligrams. How much does the average American get in a day? Thirty five hundred milligrams, give or take. I've seen 34, I've seen 35, 3,500 milligrams per day compared to 1,500. That's over double the amount of sodium that we should be getting according to this DASH diet outline. Um, And where does that salt come from? A majority of it in this uh, infographic from the American Heart Association, 77% of uh, sodium in our diet comes from processed and restaurant foods. So many processed foods. Which foods are they? Um, There's what's referred to as the salty six. The salty six are the six popular foods that add the most salt to our diet. Now, this recommendation is based off of the twenty three hundred milligrams of day, but either way, it's still these contribute a lot. What's the number one bread? Bread has a lot of salt. Pizza has a lot of salt. Sandwiches have a lot of salt. Related to bread and sandwiches are that cold cut those those cold cut meats, the processed cured meats. A lot, and that's related to pizza as well with the pepperoni. Um, I remember in high school, I was in an choir and we went to a performance. And during a between rehearsal and and our performance, some friends went to um, a pizza cafe, cafeteria, to get a really large pizza. I remember them literally folding it up and squeezing out that grease. I, but I think about the same thing with salt. It has so much salt. Um, soup being a number, a big container, container um, source of sodium. Uh, I was looking at one of those cans of Progresso soup, those pre-made soups that you can get They're a can, and I we have some in our food storage. I don't really like to eat them because they have a lot of salt. One can. Of soup contained two servings but one can contained about 1400 milligrams of sodium just in one can and for me as an adult male i would need to eat at least that full can of soup to get full but i'm getting like almost my full daily dose of sodium in one serving in one meal the last thing was burritos and tacos i think that just is representative in part of restaurant prepared foods where it's made palatable in large part because of of um the salt the sodium intake and all the seasonings and stuff they're hidden it's not easy to avoid but it does it it takes effort I like this um, graph. Basically, it's highlighting how with when we're looking at blood pressure particularly, having eating the DASH diet and specifically a DASH diet with low amounts of sodium will lead to the lowest amount of systolic blood pressure. So it will lower our blood pressure the most. Simply Even without the DASH diet, cutting down sodium intake allows us to get from like a high intake to a low intake of salt, the 3200 milligrams to 1500 milligrams, lowers can lower our blood pressure by about eight points, eight blood pressure um, readings. So from 133 to 100. 26 or so. Dash, on Dash diet, that number can get as low as 123. So it's significant. And for somebody who's wanting to help support their, lower their blood pressure, lowering the salt really can help. Now, how does it do that? I think as we often hear, cut down on your salt because it'll help with lower your blood pressure. But why? Why does it do that? Now, it really comes down to the kidney. Our kidneys do amazing things. There's these two organs about the size of our fists, kind of in the lower back um, side of our bodies. I think one of the main things that happens in our kidneys is uh, filtering our blood and and also the control of blood pressure. In the most basic unit of the kidney is called the, is called the nephron. And the nephron is a very, very, very small structure. But in it, it starts by filtering their blood in this um, colander, like, like a spaghetti colander type thing. It lets a lot of things through and keeps some things in the blood. So all this liquid and some other things go into this tubule of the nephron and then after it goes through our body's like wait we need to keep some of that we need to keep some water we need to keep some sodium we need to keep sugars and amino acids and other ions we can't so we don't pee them all out cuz ultimately this feeds into our bladder and then we it goes out as urine and one of the ways that our body controls that is through these opening and closing of these doors of that regulate sodium So if you're able to look at this image, you'll see that where all of these places where sodium leaves the nephron and goes back into the blood. This is a simplified diagram, but it allows us to see it fairly well. Where sodium will go, water will go also. So if we eat a diet that's high in salt, the idea is is that our body will want to retain it and extract it from the nephron back into our blood. If the sodium goes, water will go too because of the osmotic forces that are at play. And if the water is retained, then we have more volume in a defined amount of space. And if you can think back to your physics classes the volume and pressure if we uh, if we have a high volume but a fix if sorry a, high, a lot of fluid in a in a specific confined volume it's going to exert more and more pressure and that's where we get blood pressure from our body regulates that because we do need a certain level of blood pressure but we just don't want it to go through the roof because that would be a problem so Nephron helps control our blood pressure, and uh, this is honestly where one of the main mechanisms of action for blood pressure drugs go. Um, We we often talk about diuretics, thiazide diuretics, loop diuretics. You may have heard these tossed around by a doctor or on the news with uh, medication ads or things like that. These diuretics help control the flow of the sodium uh, out of our nephron. Uh, There's it, also su- suggested that it's the potassium that also makes a big effort um, as as well in controlling that blood pressure. Also, okay, enough anatomy physiology, but really, I just wanted to illustrate and teach you about why controlling salt leads to controlling blood pressure. So there you go. In a nutshell. Jumping over into the Mediterranean diet for a minute, the Mediterranean diet is very similar to the DASH diet. When I think of the Mediterranean diet, I think of everything that's amazing to eat from Italy and Greece, the Mediterranean region. You could extend that even further. Um, I've never been to either place, Italy or Greece, though I want to go to both someday. But I love... Mediterranean food um, and I think about that food when I think about the Mediterranean diet so the Mediterranean diet emphasizes vegetables fruits whole grains beans and legumes it includes low-fat or fat-free dairy products so what I think of as feta cheese you think of feta, feta goes with pretty much any greek salad for example at least the ones that I've had fish a lot of fish poultry, non-tropical vegetable oils, and nuts. So uh, non-tropical, I think that refers to like olive oil instead of like palm oil, for example. There's a lot of olive oil contained in the Mediterranean diet. Um, The Mediterranean diet limits sugars, sugary beverages, and the sodium like we talked about before, highly processed foods, uh, refined carbs, saturated fat, or fatty and processed meats. So we're looking at really whole meats, whole foods, um, healthy vegetable oils, healthy fats, low-fat dairies, um, tons of fruits and vegetables. I think it just sounds amazing to me, and um, it would be awesome if it would be easier to like eat this more often. I, I think I would like to, but it, and it's a reminder to me that I can and probably should do that myself, and especially for individuals who are wanting to support their heart, this can be a benefit. This is a graph from one study that shows how an individual basically who was eating a Mediterranean diet, whether they were adding extra virgin olive oil, the EVOO, or nuts, had a lower uh, rate of heart attack stroke or death from cardiovascular causes. And I think I think there's a lot of other studies that can show this as well. This is just one of them. Okay, so we talked about dash diet, we talked about Mediterranean diet. There are others. There's the Ornish diet, there's vegetarian, like like I said earlier, my goal is not to go through all of them, but just to teach you a little bit about the role of diet and Uh, heart health but i wouldn't be uh, in good conscience if i talked about heart without talking about exercise so i know that um i know we're talking about foods and diets but the movement goes hand in hand with exercise i toy around with the word exercise it's it's in the vernacular we use it a lot But I really prefer the word movement over exercise. I feel like exercise, there's a certain level of expectation that goes with it, that we need to move our body a certain amount or certain ways. Uh, But really, movement is just movement. Anything that we do to move our body is going to be better than nothing. Um, Healthy movement is one of the ideas Um, I'm really borrowing it from the health at every size movement, how we really can be healthy at every size. Um, I talked about that more in my podcast about the science of eating. And I think there's opportunities to incorporate more movement. I was in preparing this presentation that I gave recently in my community. I found this quote that I absolutely love um, by Tony Robbins. He says, it's not that diabetes, heart disease, and obesity runs in your family, it's that no one runs in your family. Now, I recognize that might come across a little harsh, but I also think it's funny at the same time. But any movement that we do is going to be helpful. The American Heart Association recommends at least 30 minutes of moderate intensity exercise at least five days a week for about 150 minutes a week. If we're increasing that to a vigorous exercise, that's 25 minutes a day for three days, or oh, three days a week, and then also incorporating some high-intensity muscle-strengthening activity um, for additional benefits as well. Ultimately, moving—we need to move our bodies. I love the study that I found of individuals that were over the age of 70. They found that. Increasing our average amount of walking by 500 steps, just 500 steps lowered the risk of a heart di- heart disease, stroke, or cardiovascular event by 14%. That's just 500 steps a day, maybe about a quarter of a mile. 500 steps of walking. If that, um, by comparing individuals who walked 4,500 steps a day versus 2,000 steps a day. That's an increase of 2,500 steps. That lowered the risk of a cardiovascular event, so a heart, heart attack or stroke, by 77%. That's just walking. I love walking. I went on a walk earlier. It was so nice just to get away from my desk, get away from my computer, to be outside, and to take some deep breaths because I really need to do that more. My wife reminds me that I need to breathe more. And It is true. Um, walking is free. You can do it fairly easily, um, and and oftentimes for me, I like just to go in different loops around my neighborhood. There's the small loop, the medium loop, and the big loop, and um, that for me, that's what I what I really enjoy. And I know that by doing so, it helps is helping my heart. Now, I talked about this at the beginning, challenging the idea that medications are going to be necessary. Are they going to be needed? Very likely, perhaps, but the goal is not to. This is a diagram of the therapeutic order of naturopathic medicine. Now, this is the framework that I was trained in as a naturopathic medical doctor. During school, we learned and focused really on making sure that we're establishing the foundations of optimal health. There's the di- There's the diet, the nutrition, the exercise and movement, stress reduction, sleep, social supports. those foundations of health are so important and form a basis of, a, of this of a pyramid. We need the foundations there before we can go anywhere from up. After we build on those foundations, then we can start figuring out, okay, what's going on with the body? Let's stimulate the body's ability to heal itself. Let's support and restore weakened body systems. That might mean supplements. That might mean um, herbs or botanical treatments to support the body's healing ability. Naturopathic doctors like myself are trained to address physical alignment do I do it a lot? No, because I think chiropractors are, are are trained even better than I am, so I would like to refer to them for that. But can I, and have I been trained to move the help the body f- physically adjustment through through alignment? I have. I think it has its place. After that, we go to symptom relief. Symptoms are so important. They're the they're the warning lights on the dashboard of a like a car that say that something's going on that we need to pay attention. Sometimes symptoms can be really annoying, so we just need to calmly suppress them or relieve those symptoms. We try to do that naturally. If that doesn't work, we can do so synthetically or through medications. And then ultimately We suppress that pathology through really high force interventions like surgery, really high intensity medications, and so forth. This is the philosophy that drives naturopathic medical practice, or at least the way that I practice, um, and is consistent with my colleagues who are naturopathic doctors, naturopathic medical doctors all across the United States, Canada, and I dare say the world our medication is still going to be needed possibly but while i am while someone comes to me with medications i also want to make sure that we address all the other things in that foundation the bottom layers of this pyramid as possible so that's my goal as a naturopathic medical doctor what is the bottom point of all this i think that we can eat for our heart we can curate our nutrition to be optimized for the health of our our health of our heart. We can do it for other things too, but our heart specifically. Going back to that story at the beginning, me as a first-year medical student holding this heart of a of that was in a cadaver pondering what what that heart experienced in that lifetime and motivating me to hold the health of my own heart better, encouraging others, whether it be uh, patients, people I'm able to educate through things like this podcast to help support their heart as well. We have so much potential. I've seen it work and, and it motivates me to keep going I love talking about the heart. It's an amazing organ. And this Valentine's Day, in the midst of heart-shaped valentines, heart-shaped boxes of chocolate, um, the little cards that kids pass around at elementary school, um, other um, heart-shaped displays of affection, we also remember to take care of our own heart the one inside of us, the one that doesn't necessarily look like the hearts that we see on Valentine's, but nevertheless, one that is keeping us alive and allowing us to really love those that are around us. The more we love our heart, the more we can love and be loved. And I think that's the point of this. And that's the point of everything I do to support the heart. Thank you so much for listening to the Naturopathic Family Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something new that you can apply to your health and to your family. If you did, please take a minute and leave a review on your podcast platform so that others can find this podcast and benefit from it as well. We'll see you next time. And until then, be well.